we're going to be talking about biblical manhood and what that looks like. And so we're going to um, just start in the beginning, start at the, at the beginning of Scripture, uh, Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 today, uh, just to kind of, you know, start from the beginning, just to see what God originally intended. Um, before we get there, I've got a couple of videos I want us to look at. And this first one, hopefully, will just be an encouragement to you uh, as we get started with this study. And this is a video by Matt Chandler. I was talking with Dr. Adam Gow, one of our members, a good friend. He said it's funny that when his wife goes away to men's retreats or women's retreats, because that wouldn't work, right? Um, <laughs> but when his wife goes away to these women's retreats, she's always just encouraged. You know, there's like, you can do it, girl. You're awesome. Jesus is going to walk with you. Men's retreats always like, you're a moron. You're worthless. You're a stupid man, right? It's just that, right? Every speaker takes another text and says that to men. And, and part of that is because um, some men like to be talked to directly like that. I personally am not one of those. Like, if you're like, you're a stupid man, I'll show you stupid man. All right? That's my knee-jerk reaction right there. I don't, you talk straight, but don't yell at me. And so in the, in the end, brothers, let me, for all of the sacrificial love, for all of the setting the spiritual climate of your home, for all of the provision, for all of the come and die, look right at me. You can do this. God will not call you to what he will not empower you to do. You can do this. And if you're like, you don't know me, you don't know the devastation, and I'm only like my seventh marriage. Then with this one, you can do this. My kids already hate me. Then own your sin and ask their forgiveness. Whether or not they do or not isn't your burden to carry. You can do this. It'll start awkwardly, it'll move forward weirdly, and God will honor it. When you pick up your kid today, you can grab the family devotional. Just sit down and just read it off the page. God will honor that. After a while, you'll feel comfortable and you'll try to get creative. And you're like, oh, the story of Jesus walking on the water. You know what? There's a storm, there's lightning, there's thunder. Let me give this kid a drum, this kid a flashlight. So when I read the word lightning, they flash the flash. And he hits the thing when I say thunder. And then you'll end up whipping one of the kids because they won't stop spanking the thing. And then you'll learn and the Lord will honor it. You will try to encourage your wife. She will get offended. You will learn and God will honor it. You will pray with your wife. It'll feel awkward and uncomfortable. It will even feel forced, and God will honor it. But you can't just sit around and go, I can't do it. Your little bathtub of self-pity does not lead towards biblical manhood. You just entering the fray as imperfect and broken as you are will be honored by the Lord. You can do this. You can. So hopefully that's an encouragement to you because there may be things we talk about over the next 12 weeks that you think, man, I've already messed up. You know, I've already been there. I've already gone the opposite direction. Um, you know, I have, ne I have not been a perfect husband. I've not been a perfect father. And probably everybody in this room could amen that uh, in your own life. Uh, but the truth is that God has a purpose in all that and he wants to draw out of us uh, the, the, the good out of those situations. And, um, and we can still be men that honor God in everything that we say and do from this point forward. And so our next video, what I want us to see is we're going to be talking about biblical manhood. But in our culture, we're surrounded by a very non-biblical understanding of what a man is and what masculinity is. Um, there's a lot of confusion 
And so to demonstrate that, this video is a little bit longer, it's about seven minutes, uh, but this is a, a popular YouTube channel called Soul Pancake. Don't ask me why, but um, <clears throat> anyway, they've got a group of men together, and they're just asking them, what is masculinity? What does it mean to be a man? These are all men just plucked from the world, and you get an idea of their viewpoint on what it means to be a man. You'll have to excuse that, remember, these are not men not from the church, so there is one word in here that you probably have not typically heard in church, um, but hopefully it's said so fast you won't even catch it. But um, just listen closely and see what uh, these guys have to say about what they believe masculinity is. side as a kid and never felt really comfortable with that because it seemed like that wasn't masculine. So for you guys, how do you define that for yourself? So I grew up a military brat. I lived all over the world. Yeah, you have, you know, masculinity around the military bases. But at the same time, there, there wasn't a feeling of, um, you're not a man. You know, I don't think I've ever been told to man up. I've been told to suck it up, Sure. you know, but never the words man up. Never had to think of what it means to be a man. You're just, you are who you are. I find it really a hairy topic. I went to an old boys high school where everybody played sport and kids fought, and I found that environment quite threatening at times. I guess my definition of masculinity came through that. There's definitely something about strength in the traditional definition, and silence maybe in there a little bit in terms of emotional silence, emotional withholding. My idea of masculinity wasn't necessarily like violence or aggression or neighborhood. It was definitely your place in the family structure. My parents met in med school in Armenia, but when he moved here, my mom stopped working once they had kids. She was the caretaker, and those roles were incredibly defined. Coming out of the closet challenged so many of those roles. It was like Jacqueline Hyde. It was like, I know everything I've learned of how I'm supposed to be, and then there's the person I actually am named raised by my mother, so always looking for the masculinity. <laughs> I went to an all-boys school, and then I joined the Marines, and I think maybe I was looking for more of that masculinity or uh, an identity. Now I'm a father. Now I can care less. I feel more masculine than I've ever been, just because now I, I know what this role is and who I'm supposed to be. It's not this weird, like, am I supposed to like, like sports and, you know, uh, chop wood or something? Like, what is it? <laughs> now it's like I know it. My role is to take care of my daughter. That to me is most well, identifying. Sorry, our masculinity. I think one of the downfalls of society, I thought about this for a while, is that there's no sort of rite of passage in our world today about this is the moment you become a man. There's no moment where society says, okay, great, now you've, you've done that, your childhood is over, now you're a man. And I think as a result, there's so many people, so many guys 
they're never going to give him permission to be a man and say like, okay, great, I'm a man now, I need to behave in that way or, or own up to these responsibilities. And they're left in this sort of perpetual, you know, man-child, grown-up boy kind of life. Um, we were talking earlier about this social scientist named Brene Brown, right? And when she talks about shame, she talks to this audience of 500 people. She goes, let's talk about men, what makes men feel shamed. And she says, if you want, we can all say it together. What is the one thing a man is not allowed to feel? And about 300 of the 500 people at once all say, weak. A man is not allowed to feel weak in our society and that it often is the source of a tremendous amount of shame. Uh, I feel like as a guy, you can't really show fear because you're judged as, uh, as a male, so you have to be kind of strong. I think men can't express sadness because it's emasculating. They, you know, if they show that they can be sad, then they're less of a man. Nobody wants to be less of a man. Uh, I'm going through a divorce right now, and, uh, geez, God, we tried everything, and then we ended up wanting different things. But this is the first time in my life where I was like, I couldn't figure this one out. I mean, I wish there was a way to fix it because I love this woman, you know, with my whole heart. And, we, you know, we'd lay in bed and we'd cry together and we'd just talk about it all the time. But uh, this is the first time in life where I was just like, uh, I can't fix this. I can't think my way out of this. And uh, I didn't realize how much shame it came with just failing. This felt like a big failure as a man in this country and in a way where I couldn't. And, you know, everybody knows half people get divorced. Totally. But it felt so monumental to me. And divorce is such a common thing, too. You're not allowed to really grieve it. Grieve it. Yeah. And in the way that you feel like you can, especially right. as a man, you're just supposed to move on. Right. But uh, it, it is a, a death in a, in a way that uh, I had never felt before. When I lost my job during the recession, that was one of the most real, mm-hmm. shameful feelings as a man. Now that I feel like I'm really a man, not just a boy anymore. And uh, I remember the whole world like fell underneath me, and I didn't know who I was or what I was supposed to do. And I didn't actually call my wife. I was just so ashamed that. I lost my job and uh, took a while to kind of bring up the courage and um, she, when I told her we had this really long discussion and I realized that I don't need to worry about those things, that she's uh, my partner. Dealing with fear, shame, and grief is something that I think I handle kind of internally. I don't, I don't like to make those things external and I think that that is kind of symptomatic of our society in the way that we've created gender roles. I think that, you know, everyone has a range of emotions as a human being. Um, and I think that you should be able to display them at the appropriate time and not feel like you have to guard yourself and, you know, put on a front. I think, well, I mean, the evolution aspect of your personality is something that's really hard to become comfortable with. And the idea that, you know, you're constantly in this process of becoming a newer version and a better version of yourself. Yeah, that's key, I think, too. I used to feel a lot of shame about a lot of the ways that I did shit because it didn't seem manly. But as I've gotten older, I'm starting to realize that it's it's a self-defined thing. It's like, well, that's that's who I am. That's the man that I am. And being comfortable with defining it for myself has not always been an easy process, but it's definitely one that I feel like I'm coming to. You know what I mean? So if you want to subscribe, that's how you subscribe. So, um, in that video, we see a a lot of different thoughts kind of come out. So, he 
Uh, one of the guys said, you are who you are. And so, you know, that kind of brings with it this idea that whoever you are is somebody that you can't change or you can't uh, branch out of or grow out of. And um, a lot of times we kind of see people say those same things. They were raised a certain way, so that's just who they are, and that's how they'll always be. They think that they're stuck in a rut and that they can't, they can't change. We talked, They talked about how men are supposed to be uh, kind of a demonstrate strength, and they, they said that it's uh, uh, shameful in a lot of ways in our culture for a man to show fear or show sadness. Have you ever kind of felt that idea coming at you from culture? Yeah. Um, there's, there's this understanding, or this, you know, that men are supposed to be strong, you know, supposed to be burly, and that if you're not that way, if you, if you show fear, then you're weak, that you're less of a man. Um, and it's, I thought it was especially uh, telling that it said you couldn't show sadness. In other words, you know, the, the kind of thoughts where you'd never seen your dad cry, you know, in your whole life because he, had, he would never be sad, you know, even at a, a parent's funeral or a loved one's funeral or something, you wouldn't see him cry. Um, but there's nothing, you know, unmanly about uh, having that range of emotion. And then the last guy, one of the last guys said um, that he's realized as he's gotten older um, that he has to define for himself what it means to be a man. And I really think that that kind of gets at the heart of what our culture says. You define for yourself what it means to be a man. Um, and so what's, you know, what makes you a man might be different than what makes me a man, but that's okay because you have to define it for yourself. And that comes out of our relativistic uh, ideas of what truth is. Uh, the culture says that there is no such thing as objective truth, that um, you define for yourself what's true, and I define for myself what's true. Uh, there can be two different truths, and they can be equally valid. The problem is that doesn't mesh. In reality, you can't live that out, and it doesn't mesh with the scriptures. And so what we want to look at is, uh, is the, the text and allow it to define manhood for us. And so this is going to be a two-part study today, and uh, we'll do the first part today, and then tackle the next part uh, next week. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 26. And this is uh, picks up right before God uh, creates Adam and Eve, creates the, uh, the man and the woman. And then we'll jump into chapter 2, okay? So Genesis 1, 26 uh, through 30. Now I'm um, starting to teach out of the Christian Standard Bible, uh, the one that Brother David has, has moved to and... Um, uh, so I'm going to try to stick along with what, uh, what he's teaching out of, so it will be consistent. Um, so Genesis 1, 26 through 30, starting in verse 26, says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, Look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, and for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And then jumping over to chapter 2, starting at verse 4. Uh, this is the more detailed account of the same story. It says, These are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, 
And no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils, and the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden, as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, uh, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedellum and Onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This one at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked and yet felt no shame. All right, so we're going to kind of take these two passages and uh, put together a picture of what man was like before sin came into the picture in chapter 3. And so the first question is that we want to look at is, uh, is who is Adam, okay? Um, and not, you know, just looking at him as a personality, but looking at him and how he was created. Uh, who, who was he as, as far as how he was created? The first thing that we see is that he was uniquely physical, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that Adam was any different than we are, okay? Adam probably looked very much the same structurally as we do. Might have been taller, might have been shorter, might have been different color skin, who knows? Um, but Adam is uniquely physical in how he was created. How did uh, God uh, uh, create the, the rest of the world, or the rest of all the, the plants and animals? Spoke it into he spoke it into existence. He said, let there be birds in the sky and fish in the sea and animals on the land and all that kind of stuff. He spoke them into existence. But then with Adam, he got down and got dirty. Uh, I like to say he got down and played in the mud and created a, a man. And so he got down there, he got his hands dirty, so to speak, and he formed Adam from the dust of the ground. And then, rather than just speaking him into life, it says that he got, he breathed into Adam's nostrils, the, the nephesh of life, which nephesh has links to the Spirit of God. So it's almost like he breathed his breath, God breathed his own breath into his own nephesh, his own spirit, into the man, to give him a soul, and to give him uh, life that uh, was more than just physical life. All the animals had physical life that can be here one moment and be taken away the next. But the man has an eternal being about him. 
He's going to live for eternity in one place or another. He's either going to live with God in eternity or he's going to live separated from God in eternity. And that stems from him having that breath of God breathe into him. And so he's uniquely physical, but this breathing the breath into him makes him uniquely spiritual. Uh, we have a spirit about us as human beings. This isn't even necessarily something that's just masculine. As human beings, we have a spirit in us that makes us unique from all other animals. Now, you talk to the right person out in the culture, and they'll tell you that that's not true, that an animal has a soul, and it's the same kind of soul that we have. And while an animal may have a, a personality about them, I've seen some animals at the zoo that have pretty wacky personalities. Uh, I've had dogs that have some crazy personalities. Um, the only kind of cats that I like are the cats that act like dogs. Um, and uh, we know we've had some of those in my life who will like, follow you and take a walk with you in the woods and you know, stuff like that. Um, but that's just a, that's talking about personality. But when you talk about eternal soul or eternal spirit, only humans have that. So we're uniquely spiritual. And next, we are God's image bearer. Verse 27 of chapter 1, God says, Let us make man in uh, our own image. Verse 26, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And so, verse 27, God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God he created them male and female. And so uh, men and women are created in the image of God. That means we are the image bearers of, of God, of, of who he is. Now, it doesn't mean that we're mirror copies of God or that we're exact copies of God. Far from that, right? But we are images of God. And it's just like you have pictures on your phone, you have pictures on your wall at home or on your desk at work. Those are images of a real thing. Now, you can't get out there and shake hands with a picture that's on your phone, even if you see a hand on your phone, because it's just an image of it. And so you can see some of the characteristics of that person, but it's not that person. It's the same way with us as God's image bearer. We are carrying the characteristics of God with us where we go. Now, do we have all the characteristics of God? No. Um, I'm not omniscient. Okay, My wife tells me that all the time. Um, she, she helps me remember that, right? Um, I am not, uh, uh, I don't have the patience of God. You can ask my kids that. <laughs> um, I don't have the wisdom of God. All of you guys in here could probably attest to that. You know, we don't have this, all the same characteristics of God, but he's putting the capacity in us to, to reason and to love and to care for. Um, he's, he's given us the uh, capacity to uh, choose or reject him. I mean, we've we've he's given us these capacities of of choice and of wisdom and of of reasoning and understanding. He's given us a lot of his characteristics uh, that we carry into the world and that we have to show in a redemptive quality to the world. The uh, some of the images that God has put in our life can be abused. Some of the God's the the image that we bear can be abused if we don't care for it in the right way. And so this is who Adam is, as described. He's uniquely physical. He was created unique from all the other creation. He's uniquely spiritual in that he has the breath of God in him. And he is the only creation that is the image bearer of God. So the next thing is, where is Adam? Okay, so this has gotten a lot of back and forth discussion in the last 10, 15, 20 years um, about where Adam truly belonged. Uh, if any of you guys ever read the book Wild at Heart, y'all read that? The big theme of Wild at Heart is that a man belongs in the wilderness. 
You know, that he finds his true soul when he's out in the wilderness, when he's in a rough environment, when he's in a, in a risky environment. That's where a man finds his true, uh, his true uh, qualities about him. Um, but I don't necessarily believe that that's true. Uh, I believe that the wilderness can teach us a lot. And one of, the, one of the reasons behind that is that every time God wanted to teach one of the men in the Bible something, he usually took him out to the wilderness. He took Moses out to the wilderness. He took Abraham out to the wilderness with Isaac. You know, he takes men out to the wilderness to teach them something. But whenever, before sin came along and messed things up, God built man out in the wilderness. And then where did he put him? He put him in a garden. It says that God formed Adam and then placed him in the garden. Verse 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had formed. And so he put him in a garden. So does that mean we all need to be gardeners? I sure hope not, because I'm, I'm not very good at gardening. Um, I have plants just die randomly. You know, like I've got along the front of my garage, I've got like six or seven azaleas right there. I water them all equally all summer long. And some of them are nice and green now, and then just like two random ones here and one over here just decide to die. I'm just like, you know, what else do I have to do? I fertilize them all the same. I water them all the same. I just need to have Willis and, uh, and Robin come over and take care of my flowers for me because then that way maybe they won't die. Um, but, you know, it's not about being in a garden specifically. But it's just the fact that God took Adam and he took, put him in an environment where he had a purpose, where he had a place for him to work, a place for him to serve, a place for him to carry out the reason for which he was designed. And he was placed in the garden uh, to care for it, um, to, um, to watch over it. Verse 15 says that he placed him in the garden to work it and to watch over it. And so um, that's where uh, Adam is. But he's also in another place, which is less of a physical place and more of a relationship place. He's in a covenant relationship. Did y'all notice the covenant in there as, as we read through that scripture? God said in verse 16, The Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. So there's a covenant relationship there. God's saying, look, you have access to everything that you need, and I'm here too. Because whenever God, whenever after Adam and Eve sinned, what did they hear? They heard God walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, and they knew what it was. Otherwise, you know, they wouldn't have hid from him. They knew who it was. And that implies that they had heard that sound before. They had heard the steps of God coming down the pathway before. Um, so there was a relationship there that they had with the Creator God. He was in a covenant relationship with them. And the covenant was this. If you obey, you have everything that you need. But if you disobey, you receive death. And so there was a covenant relationship. And so Adam was in a garden, but he was also in this relationship with the Lord. And that's important to remember because a lot of times we talk about a relationship with Christ as something that we, our relationship with the Lord as something that we receive when we, Christ forgives our sins and uh, we are saved and we have that relationship with God. Well, sometimes we forget the fact that that's the way it started all the way back in the beginning, is that we were designed for a relationship. That's why there's a, you know, we say there's a God shaped hole inside of all of us. It's because we were designed with that need and with the capacity to have that relationship. But until Christ fills that hole, um, that is missing. And so the next question is this, what is Adam? Okay, uh, the obvious answer is he's a man, but that's not what we're going for. Okay, 
He is a man. But Adam is, first of all, he is a ruler. Okay, he's told to rule over, uh, rule over the garden. Whenever, looking back at verse 1, um, God blesses Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, in verse 28, said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And so Adam and Eve you know, were designed to rule. Okay, and we see in the in chapter two that 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 command was really given to Adam first before Eve was even created. Adam was given this command to rule. Um, that doesn't mean that we you need to go pick up your wife here in a little while from the other Bible study and say, "What'd you learn tonight, honey?" Well, I learned that I'm your ruler. That's not what we're getting at here. And um, if you say that, then we'll just go ahead and excuse you for next week because we don't want to we'll see all the black and blue on your face and everything. It doesn't mean that we get to lord over our wife or you know subdue her because we were given the command to rule and then she came later. It's not at all what it means. But it does mean that God put us here on earth to rule over earth. And so, you know, one of the trendy things to say right now is we're supposed to live in harmony with the world and Man has done everything it can to destroy the world. And there's even philosophers out there uh, who believe that the best thing for the earth to happen would be for 90% of human, humankind to die off so that the earth could rejuvenate itself because we've done so much to destroy the world. When in reality, this earth was created for us. Adam and Eve were the crowning creation of God's total creation. Earth was made for us. Um, and so we're put here to, to rule over it. Psalm 115 alludes to this. It says, The heavens are the Lord's, but the earth he has given to the human race. And so the heavens are the Lord's, but earth he has given to us. And so he has put it under our control, our leadership, our um, stewardship, and we are supposed to rule over it. But in the midst of ruling, we also have to remember that Adam uh, was a, uh, a servant. Okay, Adam was a servant. Um, if we read Psalm 24, we see that the earth and everything in it, the world and its inhabitants, belong to the Lord, for he laid its foundation on the seas and established it on the rivers. Okay, established it on the rivers. And so, uh, for example, how many of you guys have ever had a company vehicle? Okay, a few of you have had a company vehicle, okay? And your boss said, all right, this is your truck. I want you to use it, right? Was that truck really your truck? No. It might have gone home with you. Uh, you might have washed it and took care of it and cleaned it and filled it up with gas. Uh, you know, there's lots of things that you did for it, and you said, this is my truck. Um, if, if you were picking up some guys, you know, at the work site, you say, hey, come get in my truck. You know, you refer to that as your truck, but in reality, it belonged to the company. No matter how many times your boss says, you know, it's your truck, it's your truck, it's your truck, what he means is it's your truck to use to steward, to care for, um, but ultimately it belongs to the company. It's the same thing here with the earth. Psalm 115 says, God has given man the earth. It belongs to mankind. But it's the same kind of principle. Everything belongs to the Lord. Okay? I mean, Mars belongs to the Lord, Jupiter belongs to the Lord, and earth belongs to the Lord. It's all the same. But he's given us control over the earth to steward it and to, to watch it and to care for it. And so we are supposed to realize that we are a ruler of the, of the earth, but really we are stewards or servants of what God has given us. So the way that we care for the world is by doing what he would have us to do in order to care for it. 
And so the things that he told us to do was to subdue it, to work it. He said, uh, uh, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls in the earth. Uh, he talks about seed-bearing plants and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, talks about you able to eat from these different trees, from every tree of the garden, except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so as a, uh, a good ruler is also going to be a good servant of the things that he has given us. Um, if you've ever had bosses in your life, probably those bosses that you loved to work for the most were those that not only gave you instructions, but then they also gave you care. You know, they also showed concern when you had something going on in your family. Um, they uh, met a need, you know, at a special time whenever you had a really significant need. Um, you know, th those bosses that didn't just give you commands, but they were there to serve you and care for you in the midst of uh, difficult days. And so a, a ruler and a servant kind of have to go hand in hand. And so that's a little bit of a picture of who Adam is, where Adam was, and what Adam was. But the next question we have is this. How was Adam supposed to rule and to serve? And this flips over to the back page. And this gets to the kind of the heart of the first part of what our, our study is for these next this week and next week. And uh, I call it God's Mandate for Men. Um, God's Mandate for Men. There's, there's three things that I believe that the scripture here in, in uh, Genesis 1 and 2 shows us that men are to do. Uh, the first one is work. You see that there on your page. Um, the next one, if you, you see down, we'll talk about this next week, is to keep. Uh, my translation says to watch over. Um, so to work and to keep or watch over. And then third, to glorify. Um, I, I believe everything comes back to glorifying God. Um, so these are the three things that I believe we can see as the primary mandate for men. Obviously, we can we could we could pull, pull a bunch of small things out and say a man should do this, a man should do this, a man should do this, but they all should come back. I think to these three things: to work, to watch over or keep, and to glorify God. And so let's look at work. Okay, the Hebrew word for work is avad. Um, it means to uh, work or serve. To labor, cultivate, perform acts of worship. And that's kind of an interesting last one there, uh, to perform acts of worship. Whenever we talked about our temple study last year, we talked about how um, the uh, whenever the priest went up to serve in the temple, that that word that they went into the tabernacle, it says that they would go in and they would worship or they would go in and they would serve the Lord, is this word avad. And so the word, same word for worship, um, is the same word a lot of times that's used to translate for work. Um, and so it, it shows that um, uh, as we worship God or as these priests were serving in the temple, that they were doing the work of the Lord, that they were working with Him. And so uh, that's kind of some of the implications we get there from that word. And so a faithful man is one who has devoted himself, okay, to devoted himself to working and, and, and having purpose in his work. And the first thing that he's devoted himself to is cultivating. Okay, um, these all kind of have to do with this garden idea, because if we're um, talking about work in a garden, he was put in a garden to work. We want to kind of bring in some of these agricultural ideas. What was what was Adam doing and what can we see those things coming out in our life as well? The first thing is to cultivate. You may grow up on a farm. We've got some farmers. OK, did you ever was it like a, a average size farm, big farm. What did you have? Just uh, small. OK. Family. So got there with your own tractor and, and did kind of stuff like that? Okay, all right. Anybody ever got to ride one of those big, huge tractors? 
I've always wanted to drive one. You, you ever gotten to be one of those things? I've always wanted to drive one of those, but I'm pretty sure I'd level somebody's house. Uh, probably wouldn't be a, a good, a pretty picture. I got a, a friend of mine, an, an older gentleman, who has a, uh, you know, thousands, thousands, thousands of acre farm out in Big Spring. He's always telling me, "Yeah, come on out. I'll put you on one of my cotton pickers and let you go to town." I'm like, I don't know, I don't know about that. But um, you know, when it comes to cultivating, you don't just go out there and stick a seed in the ground and hope that it grows. That's probably why I can't grow anything, you know, because I don't know, <laughs> I don't do any cultivating. Um, I know Willis has told me before that every every year, whenever it's time for him to plant his garden, he goes down to Alto and gets a truckload of uh, chicken manure, you know, to work into the soil because you got to cultivate. You got to get those nutrients back down into the ground, especially around here where it's so sandy and there's just not a whole lot of nutrients in the ground. Um, you know, there's certain places where you could literally drop a seed and it would sprout out. My grandma's uh, front flower bed at her house in Rusk is that way because she has lived there since. You know, my mom uh, was a little little kid, and so uh, she's been working that same ground for years and putting stuff into it. She's literally trimmed her hydrangeas before and just left the branches on the ground, and new hydrangeas grew from the branches that just kind of got dropped on the soil. And that's how rich that soil is. Um, but as you grow a garden, you got to cultivate it. You have to work it. you got to work into to the ground. And so it's the same way with us. Whatever your your garden is, because we're all not all gardeners, you know. We got uh, engineers. We got uh, former sheriffs in here. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Um, you know, we got different occupations that are represented in here. We cultivate. That's our garden, and we've been called to cultivate and to work in that soil. And so, um, you don't just see your uh, your occupation as a place you go to and then you leave, and you invest just in your work. That whole area is your garden. And so you work in the lives of the people that are around you. You work in the lives of your boss, your superiors. You walk in the, uh, work in the lives of those that are under your authority. And so all those are areas that you cultivate. You cultivate in those outside your immediate office that you work with. Um, you guys have uh, grandkids or kids. Those are your areas of, of influence as well. Those are your little gardens too. I've got four gardens in my house, you know, all my, my kids. Those are four little, or maybe four rows in my garden, something like that. And I have to cultivate them. And do you, whenever you work a garden, does every single uh, vegetable need the same type of soil and nutrients and all that kind of stuff? No, every, you know, there's different things for, for different, you know, stuff. Um, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but I've always been told that if you want to change the color of a hydrangea, you can drop some nails that'll rust next to it, and it'll make it turn from blue to pink. It's like whenever you put that iron or something into the ground, it'll make the, the you know, change colors. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, but, you know, there's different soils. If you grow azaleas, they grow really good underneath a tree and ground that's acidic. But there's certain plants you put in acidic ground, it just burn it up real quick. And so just like that, my kids all need different kind of soil and different kind of growing methods for me to raise them up. And so we have to be able to cultivate. We also have to be a builder, you know, building whatever we need in order to, um, to grow our garden. Uh, and so we, we, we figure out where uh, our garden is lacking or what needs to be done better. And we build in those areas in order to, uh, <clears throat> to make things grow. And then the last thing is, is just growing. Uh, a good workman is always looking to expand his influence. And uh, you know, I remember years back, the, the prayer of Jabez became a real popular prayer. You know, you could buy books, 
and calendars and Bible covers and shirts and hats and all that kind of stuff about the prayer of Jabez. Um, and what the prayer of Jabez, one of the things that it said in there was he prayed for God to expand his fields, expand his territory. In other words, just expand his influence. And we as men called by God to, to work a certain area, as we work that faithfully, we need to say, God, now I see this over here. Can I go work that? Can I continue to work what you've given me, but can I expand my influence? Can I get out there and, and work some more? And um, I mean, you just think about Adam was, was planted in a garden. Um, and he, if he had lived faithfully in obedience to God, he would have had kids before he sinned, right? He would have eventually had kids because God's mandate was what? Be fruitful and multiply. And God just wasn't just talking about apple trees. He was talking about family, children. So um, it would have been great if Adam had forgotten the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and began having kids and growing and multiplying his, that garden in his life. And as he would have done that, that would have spread out his influence. They would have taken the, you know, they would have had to plant another garden. They would have had to do, you know, do this or that as his family moved out. And so we grow those areas of influence uh, if we are faithful men. Work in itself has an inherent value to men because we were made for it. And that's important. That's something that our culture doesn't understand. Um, well, I don't know. I don't want to go that far. Uh, I don't think our culture understands that the capacity to which men were created for work. Work was something that was given to man before Eve ever came along. Um, it's something that was, uh, at least from what we have indicated in Scripture, is unique, uh, uniquely given to men. Now, Proverbs 31 talks about a woman, uh, a faithful woman, or Proverbs 31 woman, goes and buys a field, and she sells her things in the marketplace. So there's nothing inherently wrong about a woman having a job or anything like that, but men specifically were designed for work. Um, the fact that we have to work hard and toil laboriously for, uh, to produce fruit is a result of the fall. It was supposed to be, work was supposed to be enjoyable, it was supposed to be fun, um, but because of the fall, work has uh, become difficult. But there's just a value about a job well done, and I know that you guys have experienced that. We can just get out do something that was maybe was a little bit hard, a little bit challenging, and you accomplish it, you do a good job, there's just a joy or a sense of accomplishment that comes along with that. Um, and maybe even times where you got out and you did the job really hard and it didn't turn out so good, you still got a sense of, of joy and just knowing that you gave it your best shot. You know, I know I've built things before. Uh, I hate painting, but sometimes I get out there and try to paint things, and it doesn't always turn out the picture that I have in my mind. Um, like I made something for... Uh, my parents for Christmas last year, um, and I had this grand idea of what it was going to look like. And whenever I got all done, I looked at it, and it was kind of like, wah, wah, wah. You know, I mean, it was just like, it didn't quite turn out. Of course, they loved it because they're good parents. Um, but, you know, I still had a sense of satisfaction because I gave it my best shot. Work just has an inherent value. And that's something that we have to teach our kids and our grandkids um, uh, that, um, that, you know, there's just a value about it. My sons love to work on my car, which they have plenty of opportunities to do, um, <clears throat> unfortunately. Uh, one of them is going to get to help me change out headlights here before long. Uh, but, you know, they just love to get out there, and, and I'll give them a wrench, and they'll sit there, and they'll, they'll turn it, you know, and all kinds of, you know, they just have fun with it. Um, even Addison likes to get out there. But there's just something about that, that work that whenever we go outside, they want to work with me. And, um, and that's because, you know, there's just something within us that knows we're made 
for work. We're made to accomplish things. They want to play too, but there's just something about men that we know we are designed to accomplish things. And that's why whenever you meet somebody new, first thing you say is, you know, hi, my name's Rusty. What's your name? Well, my name's Bob. What do you do? That's almost always the second question. You might ask about family first, but you're eventually going to get to, so what kind of work are you in? All right, so let's move on and talk about what our work should do. Um, first of all, our uh, work should glorify God. Okay, um, Everything that we do should glorify God. I mean, it's not just our work, but everything that we do in life. But specifically, our work should glorify God. If Adam had been uh, doing the work that he was supposed to do, then he would have been fulfilling what God had called him to do, being fruitful and multiplying and subduing the earth and ruling over it. Um, we know that he did some of what he was supposed to do because he named the animals and uh, named Eve. Um, but he obviously wasn't completely fulfilling what the Lord had told him to do because before sin came into the picture, he still hadn't uh, uh, been fruitful and multiplied yet. Um, so anyway, our work should glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, uh, So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. And so uh, whatever you do, uh, whatever your work is, and uh, whatever you're involved in should be pointing people to God. Um, the second thing is that your work should serve others. Um, uh, in Matthew twenty-five forty, Jesus is talking. He says uh, in this parable, And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Uh, everything that we do for uh, other people in the name of Jesus Christ, we do for him. And we do in his honor and for the, uh, for the sake of, of his cause and his ministry. And so our, uh, our work should serve others. It should never purely be a self-serving uh, employment. Even if you're a single man, uh, you don't, even if you don't have kids, don't have a wife to support, uh, even if you don't have a mom and dad to take care of, even if your work could uh, be seen as solely providing for your needs and your needs alone, you should still be looking to see how you can serve others through your work. It may be serving those that you work with. It may be serving somebody in the community. Um, our, our work should uh, should uh, should serve other 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 people, not just ourselves. Specifically, if you do have a family, um, your work should be meeting the needs that they have. Um, in First uh, Timothy five eight, Paul writes, "If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever." Uh, part of being a Christian is providing for those that are in your family, um, uh, even in your extended family. Uh, the New Testament has many examples of how the church and those in the church are supposed to care for the orphans or for the widows. And so uh, caring for those that are within your household, with, uh, in your extended household, and then even those that are outside your household, uh, we should be caring for. So your work should serve other people. Third is your work should bring you joy. Uh, in Ecclesiastes 2, 24-25, Solomon writes, There's nothing better for a person than to eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand, because who can eat and who can enjoy life apart from Him? So your work should bring you joy. Um, you know, it doesn't mean that your work has to be fun. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, your job is the best job on the planet, or even that your job is the one job that you would like to do. Well, you, there may be something else that you would enjoy more, but nevertheless, your job should bring you joy. Uh, and part of that is just seeing that you're not working for yourself, but you're working for the glory of God. Everything that you do is pointing to Christ, pointing to the Lord. And so there should be a sense of joy in your work, joy in a job well done. You know, uh, whenever I uh, uh, 
do things and whenever I accomplish things, it doesn't always look like I think it should whenever uh, I start. Uh, I don't. It doesn't always look when I get finished how I thought it was going to look like when I get started, but you know, there can still be that joy of having a, a job accomplished, a job well done. So it should bring us joy. Uh, fifth, it should provide for our needs. Um, uh, Proverbs uh, 12.11 says, uh, The one who works his land will have plenty of food, but whoever chases fantasies like sense. So the one who works his land will have plenty of food. So whatever your garden is, you know, we talked about a garden is not always a garden where it produces food. A garden could be whatever workplace that you find yourself in. Uh, when you work hard, it provides for your needs. Um, and it doesn't necessarily always provide for your wants, uh, but it definitely provides for your needs. You know, in America, we have a lot of wants that aren't needs. You might want a newer TV or a bigger TV or want a new uh, smartphone, want a newer car. Those are wants, but they're not always needs. Now, sometimes a need, you know, like a, a newer car or a car that actually works is a need, um, and God will provide for those things. Um, but our work doesn't have to supply every want. And that's what our culture thinks. Our culture thinks that your job should provide for every want that you have and, um, you know, uh, give you all those luxuries that you desire. Uh, but that's not true. Uh, but the Lord does promise for that for his kids that he will provide for their needs. And then finally, our work should lead to living a godly life. In Paul, in First Thessalonians, Paul writes, In fact, you are doing this toward all the brothers and sisters in the entire region of Macedonia. But we encourage you, brothers and sisters, to do this even more, to seek to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that you may behave properly in the presence of outsiders and not be dependent on anyone. And so there is a sense of uh, working hard and uh, working for the Lord leads to a godly life. Whenever whenever whatever you're doing, you're, the job that you're doing, you're doing for the glory of God, uh, it's going to draw you closer to the Lord through your trust and your dependence upon Him. It's also going to lead uh, to others recognizing your work and recognizing your commitment to the Lord, and, and hopefully it will even lead them to leave a godly life. Um, and so it's important to realize that our work should do these things. And, and this doesn't mean that your job has to be the perfect job, like I said earlier. A lot of the times we think that if God would only give us this job, or if God would only give us this promotion, then everything would be great. Um, and that's not necessarily true. Um, there's ways to cultivate that joy in less than ideal job situations. Uh, one of those is just to fill yourself with scripture daily, you know, in prayer, just realizing that um, that you're going into a workplace and it may not be ideal. So you want to load up on the Lord's word and load up on uh, spending time with him in prayer, something we need to do. We need to realize that we can invest in the job and the relationships that are at our work. Um, you know, God has put you there and to have spheres of influence for a reason. Uh, so don't see it as a, a burden to go in and to deal with some of those people, even though some of those people definitely could be defined as a burden. But see that as an opportunity to spread the love of Christ to those uh, to those people. Think about the goodness in your job. There is goodness in every job. You know, we we mentioned earlier that uh, your job should glorify God. So so if there's a aspect of your job that is deliberately sinful, then that's something that can't glorify God. So you might want to get out of that. But in most jobs, there's not those things. There's just inherently a sinfulness about what you are doing. And so you need to think about the good things in your job. Contemplate, contemplate how God has, has put goodness there and see how you can draw that out. And then most importantly, especially for us men, is to remind ourselves that our identity is in Christ, not our job. 
um, you know, we we as as men like to get together and, and talk about what our jobs are and talk about how we've been successful in our jobs. But most importantly, our identity is found in Christ, not our job. So if you don't get the promotion, don't get the best job. Remember, that doesn't define whether you are a success or a, or a failure. The culture might say that that does, but the scripture says that you're a success if you love the Lord, if you follow Him, if you trust Him. And so uh, just trust in the Lord as you as you uh, work uh, every day at your job. As a couple of examples of men who were uh, manly examples of what it means to work hard for the Lord, um, we have a couple of them. I'm going to try each week to have a, a biblical example of what we talk about and an a example from history or example from contemporary life um, about what it means to fulfill what we've talked about. Today we're going to look at Noah. Um, you think about Noah. He uh, was a, a man who trusted the Lord, and he's obviously a hard worker. Think about it. He, built, he worked at a boat, building a boat for 100 years. Even though he didn't know uh, what a ship that size would do, he didn't realize why he was having to build it way up on the land when the water was somewhere else. Yet uh, Noah faithfully trusted God. He continued to build this boat, he and his family, and he did it for 100 years. Imagine the mockery that he endured from the world around him. Uh, the trust that he had to put uh, uh, in God in order to, to continue to fulfill his uh, call that he had been given. Yet Noah worked hard, and he glorified God in that. He uh, served others. You know, He served his family by providing them the safety and security that the boat would bring. Um, who knows if it brought him joy while he was building it, but I guarantee you whenever the, God shut the door and the rain started falling, there was a sense of joy uh, in Noah since he had obeyed God. It obviously provided for his needs, um, and it led to him being able to, to live a godly life of faith and trust in the Lord. Um, so Noah is a good example, but a good example from history is one of my favorite guys uh, in uh, Christian history is George Mueller. Uh, he lived from 1805 to 1898, 92 years. He was a native German, um, but uh, he spent most of his life in Bristol, England, and he pastored the same church there for over 66 years. Uh, it was kind of a an odd Baptist church. Um, but his, his thing that he's known the most for is his care for kids. In 1834, he founded the Scripture Knowledge Institute for Home and Abroad. It was uh, kind of focused on missions and caring for those uh, less fortunate. It had five main purposes, uh, schools for children and adults to teach Bible knowledge, <clears throat> Bible distribution, missionary support, tract and book distribution, and to board, clothe, and scripturally educate destitute children who have lost both parents by death. And so um, all five of these things, the success of all five of these things was significant, but the thing that he's known the most for was his orphan ministry. He built four, I mean, five large orphan houses, and he cared for 10,024 uh, orphans in his life. Um, when he started, there were only accommodations in all of England for 3,600 orphans. Uh, and there were twice that many children in uh, under eight in prison at that time. You could, you could put kids in prison. And so you just compare that. In all of England, there were 3,600 uh, orphans uh, in 1834. And throughout his life, he himself cared for over 10,000 orphans. This was a significant ministry in, in his life. Um, uh, it's estimated that after uh, his work began, after 50 years after he began his work, uh, which would uh, at least 100,000 orphans were cared for in England alone. And so he was a significant part of that. He did all this while continuing to be a pastor. He preached three times a week. 
Um, when he turned 70, think about this. When he turned 70, he fulfilled a lifelong dream of becoming a missionary. And so whenever he turned 70, he spent the next 17 years until he was 87 uh, serving as a missionary. He went to 42 countries. Um, he preached on average once a day, and he estimated he addressed 3 million people during that time. Uh, finally, at 92, he uh, passed away. Uh, after a long life of, of serving the Lord. But you think about that uh, tremendous act of service that he gave to those kids and uh, even to uh, people in other countries. His work was for the Lord, to glorify God, to serve others, to bring joy, to provide for his needs and, and for others' needs, and to lead uh, to living a godly life. Now, what's interesting about the providing for the needs part is that um, George Mueller uh, he never took a salary in the last 68 years of his ministry. So over, well over half of his ministry time uh, he spent uh, without even receiving a salary. He trusted God to put in people's hearts to send him what he needed. He never took out a loan, never went into debt. Um, he never asked people for money. Uh, he trusted for God to provide for him and to provide for all five of his orphanages and for all of his ministry endeavors. He never asked for money. One of my favorite stories about George Mueller is one day whenever he was at one of the orphanages and um, they had uh, run out of milk. They had no milk for the kids, and so they sat down to dinner that night, and the kids were wondering where their milk was for the evening, and they asked him, and he said God hadn't provided it yet but that they were about to pray and the Lord would provide. And so they prayed before their meal, asked God to provide for them. As they finished their prayer, a knock came at the door and went to the door. And uh, a man was there right outside the door whose milk truck had broken down in front of the orphanage. And he wanted to give his milk to the orphans before it spoiled. And so God just provided for George in an incredible way. And hopefully that's an encouragement to you guys uh, that uh, God will provide for us. It doesn't matter what situation we're in, uh, what uh, job that we have, God is going to provide and bring purpose in the midst of that. Our purpose, our, our responsibility, the mandate that God has given us is to work the garden that God has put us in. Uh, work the ground that God has, has put before us, to cultivate it, to build it up, to grow uh, the resources that God has given us in that, that soul. And so whatever your work is, whatever your garden is, the garden of your job, the garden of your family, the garden of your influence, my prayer for us all is that we would um, serve the Lord in those ways and uh, be faithful to Him. So next week we'll talk about the other two mandates, uh, aspects of God's mandate for men. We talked about work today, and the other ones are to keep or watch over and to glorify God. So we'll talk about that next week. Look forward to seeing you guys there.